0: And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today?
1: Well, today we're going to be talking about California privacy legislation and the Office of Privacy Protection. And as you know, we are welcoming back We have to have her on every year. Wonderful woman, Joan McNabb. She is a fabulous privacy expert, and she is a fearless leader of the California Office of Privacy Protection. I am so thrilled that I have gotten to meet her and know her and work with her. She is just Fabulous. She actually wrote the forward to my book, The Complete Idiot Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. And I just think that she is very, very special and very knowledgeable and truly one of um, my favorite guests. So if you didn't get to hear Joan last year and you want to find out about the laws, you're going to have a wonderful show today. And let me tell you a little bit about her background. She is the chief of the uh, California Office of Privacy Protection here in California. And this Office of Privacy Protection was created by legislation back in 2001. It was the first in the nation office of its kind, and it is a resource and advocacy for identity theft issues and privacy issues. And in addition to providing information and education for consumers and for businesses, the office publishes privacy practice recommendations for organizations, governmental organizations. They provide a lot of advice. She'll tell you more about what they do, but they do a fantastic job up there. And Joan is a certified information privacy professional for the government as well as for private, and she is co-chair of the International Association of Privacy Professionals with a government working group, and she also serves on the Privacy Advisory Committee to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And she is a fellow with the Poneman Institute, and she is a Frequent speaker at privacy conferences and in the media, and we are so lucky to have her. Just to let you know, though, but before she started with the Office of Privacy Protection, she had 20 years in public affairs and marketing in both the public and private sectors, including five years. Now, this was very special when she worked with an international marketing company in France, and she speaks French fluently, which is fun, just like uh, Lucy, who works for me speaks French fluently and her marketing background gives her a great understanding of the commercial use of personal information and she blends that with her knowledge of privacy and privacy protection and thank you so much Joan for joining us today
0: well thank you Marion, for that uh, flamboyant introduction <laughs>
1: <laughs> well you know I think you're terrific so let's get started cuz you always update us with the newest privacy bills so why don't you tell us about what passed this past year in 2010 and what got signed into legislation?
0: Well, it wasn't uh, a big year for privacy legislation in the Capitol. I think it was a pretty uh, uh, busy year with with um, many issues debated and privacy didn't loom as large as it sometimes has out here in California. One of the, the bills that passed one of the many privacy laws that are, are uh, kind of headline-driven. It's called the Deceased Child Victims Protection and Privacy Act. Remember that murder case down in San Diego of uh, Chelsea King and her parents were just horrified at the jillions of requests that came in for copies of the autopsy. Yes. And they regarded that as very privacy invasive. Well, now there's a law that will take effect in January in California that seals murdered children's autopsy report
1: so Mm. it makes it not
0: a public record Mm. um it's still available for law enforcement but not a a general public
1: not for gawking yeah Yeah, exactly you know it kind of reminded me of all that happening is um i remember you know who kevin mitnick is the the fbi hacker yes and um i was on his show and he was on my show but i remember talking to him that he had stolen babies' identities that had died. He told me that's how he ran from the feds: is that he would go to different cities and assume the identities of babies that had died that were had already had been issued SSNs. And you can imagine when he left, and all and the parents then would get all of these collection letters for their baby that had died. And you know, he said to me, "Well, most of the time I paid all my bills and I just moved. You know, like there were times that I left that something wasn't in order." But um, I said, did you ever think about these parents, what they were feeling? He really hadn't thought about it. But um, so I think that this is a good bill to yeah. to protect the families.
0: Yeah, it's not really an identity theft. No, no issue. But but it's a privacy. Yeah, thing. it's a privacy issue. But like the and and I think we're going to be talking. You know, I'd like to talk with you further about the whole issue of children identity theft against children. But right. th- this is a sort of slightly different. Right. Um, really sensitive area.
1: Sure. At,
0: at another one of the privacy bills that did pass that will take effect in January is to make the safe at home program that the Secretary of State's office manages for victims of domestic violence or stalking and other such crimes. Yes. To, to make that program permanent, I mean, relatively speaking, permanent. It's had a an expiration date every couple of years and it's it's been in place now for about 6 years and it's it's proven to be quite successful. Yes. You know, it, it allows somebody who has um a court order, you know, it's not just somebody says hide me. Right. uh because of being a domestic violence victim for example to use services of the Secretary of State for mailing and all sorts of public records listing so that their home address isn't available out there in the world to people who might want to harm them. So we have referred people to that program in the past, and I'm, I'm glad to see that it's proven itself now.
1: Right, right.
0: Continue. Another one is one of two bills, uh, sort of similar, one of them passed, one of them didn't. The one that passed, both of them are employment related and background check related. And the one that passed amends the California law on investigative consumer reporting agencies, which performing background checks for employment purposes. Right. The issue that was being addressed was concern about such agencies using contractors who may be offshore. Uh And the concern about the kind of sensitive personal information that comes up in a background check being moved or housed offshore where there may not be the same degree of privacy laws enforced, depending on where it is. And so this, this bill, the one that passed, does not prohibit that, but it requires the employers who are using a background screening company to give the employer give the, those who are being screened a website address for the company that's going to be doing the actual screening. And then that company's privacy policy on its web has to say whether or not they are offshoring the data.
1: And is there any right of the potential employee to say, can you use another company if they're uncomfortable with it?
0: There, there's no – there's nothing – that gives them any special right to say that you always have the right to say that. But as in in many marketplace situations, and particularly in an employment application situation, you know the the applicant is not in the strong position. No,
1: no, they really aren't. <laughs>
0: so it, it's pretty hard to imagine. And there might be people who indeed would say, "No, I'm. I if if that's what you're going to do, I would rather not um, apply." But yeah. armed with the information. You might be able to negotiate a little to, you know, see if they could use somebody else.
1: Right. Right.
0: And and current law already requires uh, that in a, in a pre employment screening that that the applicant be given a copy. Uh, yeah. Given, be notified that it's happening, and, and in effect, it little check off consent and get a copy, and so there are already rights relating to that. And this just adds this requirement that information about whether or not it's being sent off, done offshore that that be part of the policy that's available to.
1: Right. Applicants. At least it's, so. it's giving them, it's transparency. Yeah, for It's them.
0: transparency. It's, uh, you know, it's not hugely impactful. It seems to me, but it's, it, it's a good thing, not a bad thing.
1: Right. And, and the fact that there's a privacy policy, at least they can read that and see what's going to yeah. happen. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, and the one that didn't pass mm-hmm. Um is an issue that's come up in a number of states this year, and I actually haven't followed, followed up to see what happened in the other states, but it was one to limit the uh, use of credit checks for employment purposes right. to situations where there's a an apparent direct relevance. So if somebody's applying to a position where there's some sort of financial role or fiduciary responsibility, you know, may, there it would be allowed, but just if you're applying to be truck driver, the fact that you have a bad credit rating, you know, maybe that isn't relevant.
1: Yeah, yeah. They're not going to have any access to sensitive data, I wouldn't think.
0: Yeah, well, and and even just the fact that you have a bad credit, perhaps because you're unemployed, um, might not be a good reason for not being employed.
1: <laughs> and exactly. You know, a lot of people have bad credit. There have been all sorts of studies done that a lot of people have bad credit because there's been a major medical problem exactly. in the family. Yep. And so it isn't that they're malingerers. It's just that, Oh my gosh, you know, medical care can cost a fortune. Mm-hmm. And if they're late on paying their bills for that, it's going to ruin their credit score.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: Yeah. But that one didn't pass. It didn't pass. Yeah.
0: Oh. It, uh, an interesting one Um amends the Public Records Act. So we've already had one amendment to the Public Records Act and that one about the murdered children's autopsy reports. Right. This one, uh, it, it amends the Public Records Act to allow state agencies to not to disclose in response to a public records request, uh, request information that would reveal cyber vulnerabilities. So if somebody says, give me all the information about how you protect your website from being hacked, right. An agency doesn't have to give them that information, right? Right, <laughs> or, or could redact. You know, could right. cross out those parts.
1: Right, right. That's
0: a sort of logical thing. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, and always, the 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 burden still remains with the agency receiving their request to justify that. Yes, this it can't be. I can't tell you anything. It 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 puts cyber safety at risk. It, it's not that broad. They have to explain it and justify it.
1: Right. Right.
0: Um, Another one uh, provides that uh, we we have a law that allows elected and appointed public officials, it's a pretty broad category, but it's mostly used by law enforcement, uh, allows them to demand that their home address and phone number be removed from posting on public websites.
1: Right. And judges want that too. And ju- judges yeah. like it. Yeah.
0: Judges and, and law enforcement mostly, but it, it it extends to other like it could be city council members, you know, mm-hmm. it, it it goes pretty broadly. Mhm. Um this adds to that right uh in, information provided to cellular phone phone applications. If you've provided information to a cellular company applying for a phone, that can't be posted on the internet either. Okay. Yeah. Seems-
1: I surely wouldn't want mine up there for that either. <laughs> it it's it imposes
0: the existing law it d- doesn't make it real easy for those who are uh, you know have the benefit of it they have to make the demand and they have to contact the website so it's it's not easy to do but it's the sort of thing that many people think that ought to be available to everybody yes that you ought to have the right to have your residential address and phone number information removed from websites right the, our law doesn't do that yet
1: <laughs> hopefully next year <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah uh there there's an, another one regarding restitution for identity theft victims that that since since when you're identity when you're an identity theft victim particularly if it's the kind of identity theft where your social security number was used to create new accounts rather than a particular credit card right let's say
1: Right, it's, it's not just credit card fraud. Right,
0: but in the case of when it's social security number, the the uses are the possible uses of that information are many and can happen for a long time in the future. Yes. So this restitution, the new restitution um, provision, allows a longer time for the victim to be eligible to receive restitution. Now, the and that's a good thing. The the, the challenge, of course, is in the case of identity theft. Often, often enough, there is nothing to restore uh the the thief has used the financial resources of the victim to buy something from somebody else who's also out the money and when it comes to trying to make restitution there there's nothing left. Exactly. So those are the, the main major- and, and also
1: you have to catch you have to catch the guy. Yes, and there's yeah. that <laughs> And and that I think we should just kind of explain to the audience, because you and I know what restitution is, but a, a criminal victim, if they have out-of-pocket costs and they have losses, uh, not emotional distress, but basically out-of-pocket costs, mm-hmm. they can go to the court. And if the person is convicted, they can then go to the court and ask for restitution and, and show what damages that they have that are out of these out-of-pocket costs. But, you know, rarely is the thief caught, and even if they are caught— Rarely do you get restitution. I remember, Joan, back in 1996 when we did catch my my imposter and finally, you know, she was prosecuted and convicted. And I think it was 1997. They ordered restitution and I and I had out of pocket costs and they ordered it. But I think I got one check. Uh, for forty dollars, that was yeah. it. You know, so it's not something. I mean, it sounds good on paper, but it's not very often that yeah, people can it, it get it. Yeah,
0: necessarily put money back into the victims' pockets. No, I mean no. the the good news on the other hand is that the vast majority of victims of what is technically identity theft don't have out of pocket costs. Right, since More than half of identity theft is somebody using your existing credit credit card number. And while you you may still indeed have work and inconvenience and stress and, you know, all sorts of negative impacts, um, usually in those cases there's no out-of-pocket cost. Right.
1: I think it gets more expensive when you talk about criminal identity theft. Um, because I've had to help victims, and you know they've had to hire me, and yes. we have to do something or a background check that you know that shows up and is an identity theft, or sometimes if it's um medical identity theft, mm-hmm. those are much more complex, and so then yeah, then there are out of pocket costs, yep. but uh, and,
0: and even new account when it's something major, yes, and uh like some of the really complicated cases involving somebody taking over uh the a, a real estate transaction right
1: get a mortgage in your name yeah
0: and and now you're in a, in such a mess that that the legal fees plus some actual out of pocket and we, we unfortunately do regularly hear from people who recognize that something on their uh, credit report is not theirs it's it's identity theft but because they're in a situation where like for example, maybe they're buying a house. They're trying to qualify for credit.
1: Right. They'll They'll pay it off. I know. It's, you, it's because crazy. Because it's quicker than correcting it. Right. Right. We, we encourage them not to do that. Right. 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 So if you're listening and this is happening to you and you're trying to get a loan because the loan, you know, right now the the rates are so great, mm-hmm. um, d- don't do that. You know, don't yeah, do get a it.
0: police report of identity theft and right. that and the documentation that you're start that you you know you've contacted the creditors you've contacted the, the you can often enough provide all that even though it's still currently showing up on your credit report to, to the lender who also wants to make the deal
1: right and you can get that removed from your credit report oh, if yes you immediately can. tell them and you provide the documentation with to the, the credit report. bureaus yeah with a police report your affidavit and and documentation of of your identity yeah. and you can get that off and Sometimes we can get it off in you know they're supposed to do it within four days, but at least right. within you know fifteen to thirty days. So it isn't the end of the world. It isn't mm-hmm. the end of the world, but it still says something that you pass a law that says there's restitution, even though it's. Yeah. yeah, I think it it makes a statement. Yeah,
0: it it does, and and you know it's it's a step in the right direction, even if it doesn't go all the way to the goalpost. Right. Um. And and that's kind of it. There are. A, those are the the more significant ones that passed um, wasn't wasn't a big year for it. There are a couple of interesting ones, another one that that didn't pass or that didn't get enacted, and that's one that's been introduced many times to amend our data breach notice law, the law that requires um, an entity that that uh, loses control of sensitive personal information and that's acquired by an unauthorized person, and then they have to send you a letter saying, Oops, we lost your social security number. You know, one of those. Right. Um, there's been an attempt several years to uh, amend that law to make some specific requirements of what needs to be in the notice letter to be helpful <laughs> to people when they receive it, and then also to require um, that that sample notice letters be provided to the attorney general's office so that there would be a, a resource for research on what kinds of Data breaches are occurring, right? And we don't seem to be able to get that one through.
1: Now, I thought that it last year it passed, but the governor wouldn't sign it. Isn't that correct? That's clear right. If-
0: that's what happened again, again,
1: again. Why is he saying? Of course, he's not going to be around much longer. But why was he saying that um, that he wouldn't sign it? The the,
0: the the veto message says that that the current law is working, and that the additional burdens of the new law aren't justified.
1: Oh, that it would it would be a, an extra burden on business to to tell you, but mm-hmm. I think that the sad thing is is people will tell me, you know, I got this letter. What does it mean, Mari? And I go, well, you know, call them and ask them what it is that was lost. Was your social security number mm-hmm. lost? What is it? You know, demand that information, and sometimes they can get it mm-hmm. if they demand it. So mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's not in the law, but but I think if they write a letter, return receipt requested, and say I need to know, I'm very concerned about this. What exactly was lost? Yeah, and
0: as you know, one of our one of our um, best practices document is about how to do a to helpful care. notification of that kind of a breach, and we have sample letters, and so we'll and and I we see these showing up in 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 notices that that we see that people are following this kind of guideline. Other people give other people give this kind of guidance now as well to businesses. There are lots of conferences on this. And most businesses are, are, are trying to do the right thing here. Although um, some, we certainly do hear from people who get letters that don't have very much information in it and they end up just being scary and not helpful. And the, in, A major intention of that law when it was passed back in 2003 was to give people who, who are now potentially at risk of identity theft, because this information has gone astray, to, to give them early warning so that they can take action to protect Themselves, right? Like put a fraud alert on their files, but they need to tell them to do that,
1: <laughs> right? They needed to, and and I want to just mention what a great website that you do have. That's great guidance, not only just for uh, California consumers, but really all consumers, and especially for businesses that do business in the state of California, whether they're a California business or they're right. a business that does that does have uh, California consumers as their customers, they are subject to our laws. Yes, they are. And so they can go to privacy.ca.gov, and they can look at all the wonderful things you have. We're going to talk more about it later, but just wanted to mention that again. And you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, and I am the host of Privacy Piracy, and we have one of my very favorite guests, Joan McNabb. She is the chief of the California Office of Privacy Protection, and she is also a certified information privacy professional, and she is a co-chair of the International Association of Privacy Professionals Government Working Group, and she is on the Privacy advisory committee to the u.s department of homeland security and she walks on water and she's wonderful and she's been telling us about the uh legislation not a lot that passed like usually when we do this we have a ton of great mm-hmm. laws that And pass. there weren't a lot
0: introduced i think i think yeah. you know, the legislature was focused on the budget the um, budget yeah took a lot of focus
1: and the economy it's been real yeah, hard indeed it, it, it has been hard mm-hmm. but um so, what other legislation besides this one that that did get through both houses and didn't get well, signed by the, the government? Those are
0: those are really the most significant ones in the privacy area. There, there, there are some others, but they're they're kind of little tweaks here and there. They aren't. How they about
1: aren't. RFID? Anything with RFID? Nope, not, here. not our own. And there,
0: and, they, and they, there weren't that many that were introduced. They just we just didn't see a lot. Some an area where we saw a few introduced, but that, that never moved. Along, um, we're looking at various, uh, at some social networking and children's information online in particular, but they they kind of die. They they run into jurisdictional questions about how can you regulate what happens on the internet from California since the internet is out there in cyberspace. Right,
1: right, and, and maybe we, preemption with federal law.
0: Well, it, it, even the feds can't regulate the internet necessarily you know it's not yeah. just an american thing
1: right well so, they did with copa you know yeah they did with, yeah. the, the, with some of it but, uh, and, yeah, and then also tough.
0: some of the suggestions like uh trying to give parents the ability this was actually last year but it was part of this session to give parents the uh, uh, ability to have their children's pictures removed that you run into first amendment issues and it's they didn't really go very far
1: yeah, I think it's a real challenge.
0: It is. It is a challenge.
1: And I, I think all of these privacy issues for for the internet are are real tough. I I do think there we need some real good uh, amendments besides what was done for background checks. I'm I'm trying to help two people right now that have these horrible situations with background checks that just um I don't know. I don't know who who we should talk to. Who introduced the the background check legislation? Was that uh,
0: uh, let's see. It was Rod Wright, who was the the uh, Senator Rod Wright, who was the author of of the last big major amendment a few years ago to the Investigative Consumer Reporting Agencies Act. And you know that at, at the federal level, as as you know, the the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which applies generally, it, it applies to credit reporting agencies and it's about consumer credit issues, credit uh, histories. It also applies to employment related history. But the California law actually provides some greater rights for individuals because the Investigative Consumer Reporting Agencies Act applies not just to third-party background checking agencies, but even to in-house background checking, which is the way a lot of it happens now, where HR people in a company will do online background checks. Right, And so even there, in California, if you're a job applicant or an employee in California, you, you, you get notified and you have rights regarding that kind of checking, too, whereas in other states that isn't true.
1: Right. And and there's one guy that I'm working with right now that I'm uh, the poor thing. His um, was for uh, getting a, get an apartment. So the California law. Relates to getting an apartment as well. I think the FCRA does too, but yeah. but but we real but they they speak more to that whether you're trying to get an apartment, whatever relates to something that you're trying to get that, um, you know that they're talking about your criminal history and if you are a victim of criminal identity theft or in in the case that I'm dealing with right now, it's just a mixed file. Oh yes, we, and we get those. It it is horrendous,
0: and it's really a data broker who's yes who's got the records and they they are public records it's just it's a different mari frank yes yes it's not this it's not that the record's wrong but it's not
1: you exactly yeah. and and this is what happened to my this poor young gentleman that i'm working with is that you know he has no criminal background check and yet it's a different person with his name and one of the problems is when you look, and this is in San Diego, their, their records were correct. And they, when you do a background check with a company that's really reliable, they don't pull up this criminal background right. check. But when you do one with some of these smaller companies that just, you know, out there real quick, make a quick buck, and they're selling to, to landlords, um, they don't do a very thorough check. And so what happens is, you know, if it's the same name or a similar name, they're just going to pull it up and say, okay, we're putting this on your background check. Mm-hmm. So, um, And
0: they have some sort of disclaimer on it saying, this may or may not be true.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> but but what's the problem is, even if they say this may or may not be true, and in this particular case they didn't say it like they're supposed to, according mm-hmm. to the law, but let's say that they do say it. It's it's not in, you know, 16-point type, and, and the problem is, is that that's overlooked, and even if it is there, you know, someone might say, it isn't, yeah, they may just say, well, you know what, I don't even want to bother. I don't want to bother hiring you, or I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want to bother yeah. giving you this apartment if I have five people looking for an apartment. I just don't yep. want to bother with it. Yep. So it's it's a problem. And you know, the other thing that if you're listening to this, and I think it's kind of important to say, because I keep getting more and more calls on this, and I got a couple other attorneys who just wrote me just today about this. Um, The the problem is that the criminal records that you see online and that they can pull up, have a name and a birthday, and they do have like color eyes you know that, that you'll see on the DMV record, color eyes and weight and height and but it you know obviously they don't use the SSN but but criminal records are fingerprint based, but they're not going to put the fingerprints uh, available to these information brokers. So unless the information brokers are going to go beyond and look at the driver's license number and look a little bit deeper, they're going to m- keep mixing up these files. And uh, so, you know, what can I say? This is this is something that we really have to work on, and I guess it has to be changing what the criminal records even say. It's it's a problem because mm-hmm. cause you could even have the first initial be the same, but not be the same name, and they'll still pull it up. Yep, <laughs> crazy. So,
0: and then and then even if you are successful once, if it was an employment situation where they they have to disclose in advance that they're doing this and telling you who they're using rather than only when they make an adverse decision because that wouldn't be why they made the adverse decision. Right.
1: Source,
0: um, so that you can find out who the source was. And even if you can, this is what we find when we're helping people with this, you can get it corrected with that source. It's still out there, and other data brokers are going to pull it up again. Yes. So, and you can't. there's not a, a way to make because it's not a correction; it's just a a wrong query. Yes, <laughs> it's a
1: wrong query by by the information yeah. broker, and that's what I'm finding in this particular case. Um, the records are correct with law enforcement. The records are correct at the San Diego Sheriff's Department and mm-hmm. at the court. They're they're correct. It's just that the information broker is making the mistake. Yes. So that's the problem. And they are not regulated. And they're not regulated. So, you know, I am getting this poor guy said to me, you know, I'm getting a letter from the sheriff's department for him to say you are not the person. I'm getting the certificate of innocence from the D.A.'s department, Mm -hmm. you know, even though there wasn't any mix up. And I, I have another letter from the city attorney. So I have all these letters and and then I have a police report that even has both of the driver's license with the fingerprint showing the two different people. So I have all this and he goes, Mari, I have to carry this on me. And I said, Well, you know what? Put it on a thumb drive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, keep it in your in your car. And this
0: is because he's done nothing. Nothing at all wrong. Wrong.
1: Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing wrong. And he's and he's young. He's under thirty years old. And he has to consider what might happen as he goes for promotions and changes mm-hmm. jobs and what might come up again. And he and this is very worrisome because of this initial problem here that was really the information broker so that's what we need to do and i don't know if we can do it at the state level like you said that there's some that's a problem but you know
0: and one of the approaches to that whole issue it occurs to me is something is to educate users of this readily available online information about being critical of sources it's what they're starting to set as standards for for schools about digital liter- literacy or digital citizenship about the fact that oh i found it on the internet it right. must be true yes you know, no <laughs> <laughs> so knowing what are what is the level of reliability of information that you get from an information broker what are their matching criteria so that the users are not uh, uh ascribing great credibility to that
1: yes, information.
0: That, that is one piece of the complicated puzzle.
1: Yeah. And the problem is that a landlord who maybe has, yeah. you know, a few apartments, they're not gonna they're not gonna take the time. No. They're busy trying to keep their apartment building in yes, good shape. Exactly. And they're just not gonna do it. So if they're gonna rely on these these reports, the reports have to be, you know, um much they must verify this information you know i did read in that um you know in our california law that they have to verify that the information is correct when it's criminal they're supposed Mm -hmm. to verify within the last 30 days they're supposed to the information broker before they sell it
0: that's the the funny little thing about it's not that the information isn't correct it's that it's not Associated correctly,
1: right? But not, I would I'd think, say that's
0: an error, but yeah, I've had arguments about that. Yeah,
1: I, I, yeah, and I think that if they have to verify, mm-hmm. what does verify mean? Does it mean to verify that the person is who they say they are, or is it you know, y- you have to look a little bit deeper and, and look at what is what is the like when I look at the San Diego website, I can see that my client doesn't have the same. Um, color eyes mm-hmm. and isn't the same height and isn't the same weight. And that's right on the, the information right there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so that's
0: verifiable.
1: That's verifiable. It only took me a minute to say, wait a minute, this isn't the same person mm-hmm. when at first I thought maybe it's identity theft. And then I saw, well, wait a minute, it's not identity theft. It's just that this <laughs> this guy mm-hmm. has the same name as my guy. So, you know, that's, that's the problem. But we will have to follow up with that because I think background checks, more and more companies are doing background checks, right, John? Yeah,
0: and it's more, and and doing it themselves or doing them with, with brokers that they get online for 39 and And it's, you know, more and more critical to people as uh, they, the job scene is so challenging.
1: Yes, I know for this particular company, I went online and saw what they do, and they, they give you a whole background check for $25 if yeah. you're a, a tenant, so a that landlord. that,
0: that. That price point does not allow verification.
1: No, that's the, that's exactly yeah. right. It doesn't allow for it. But anyway, that's a problem. But mm-hmm. so well, let's talk about the Office of Privacy Protection and what are some of the projects that you've done in the past year?
0: Well, we we always just to sort of reiterate our basic functions. Sure, we we always have our um, our assistance line a toll-free phone number 866-785-9663, and our email um, that you can get to from our website at privacy.ca.gov uh, where we get questions and requests for help and a, a whole variety of things so that's always going on and then in addition to that we will have particular projects in a year to address issues that are looming large so one of the projects that we that we Worked on all year long and completed was a project related to the use of social security num- numbers in colleges and universities. Mm-hmm. You know, most if you look at most of the the studies that have been done of data breaches, which are based on only what we only the publicly known breaches, since there isn't some big list of every actual breach. It's the ones that make the news higher ed institutions loom kind of large. They seem to be having a pretty significant share of the publicly known breaches. So there was a, a bill that required us to create this task force and do a study and make recommendations aimed at decreasing the use of social security numbers in higher ed. Right. So we, we did that. We had a task force that had representatives of the the state university system, the state, the UC system, the, the community colleges, and the private, not for profit colleges and universities in California. And we worked on it for a year and did a, did a campus level survey and uh, found a, a number of interesting things. Um, one major finding, which we kind of knew, but we confirmed it as we went through, was since the law restricting the prohibiting the public posting or display of Social Security numbers passed in 2003, which specifically says you can't print a Social Security number on a card used, like an ID card.
1: Right, which and- was really wonderful because it really changed, like, for – the health... For health care. Health yeah, health plans. care. Yeah, yeah. It, it actually changed it for everybody in the country because yeah. they, fig- they figured if we got all these California residents, we got to change it. We'll do it for everybody. we don't so, want to have two
0: systems. Yeah,
1: so we, you know, for those of you who are not California residents, because of all the great work that Joan has done well, in the California... people
0: did. We right. have a very active privacy advocacy community in California. Right,
1: right, and the California legislature, thank you. And the California legislature, because of that, it has really made a difference for everybody in the country. I just and, wanted to say that.
0: And it made a difference in higher ed because that may, meant since they couldn't print it on like a student ID card, right. they changed the ID numbering system for students, faculty, and staff. And that not only... Removed it from these cards where it could be exposed in a lot of places and abused, but it also meant it moved out of a lot of databases because they didn't need it for every single thing.
1: Right. So
0: we've, you know, that's that's been pretty uniformly. It, I mean, that ha- has been across the board. Made a big difference in the colleges and universities. An interesting area that we found though that sort of the problematic areas and this is not just true of higher ed. This is true out there in the world. A a, a big area where social security numbers are used in way, in ways that potentially exposes them is in the whole healthcare arena and, you know, colleges and universities have not only student health clinics, but many of them are teaching, have teaching hospitals. And so they have lots of healthcare going on.
1: And, And, And you remember Joan, just last year, at the University of California, Irvine, where I'm sitting here right now, that we had, oh, I don't remember, was it like 40 graduate students that couldn't file their tax return because their health care provider had a dirty insider who took their identity and got and filed uh, tax returns in the names the of refund. these kids and got the refund so that mm-hmm. they didn't have money to even pay for their graduate school. Yep. But where did it come from? The health records.
0: Yep. Because that's it's it's a primary patient identifier and goodness knows we want to be identified when we're getting medical care. We don't want somebody else's processes performed on us in the hospital. But because that that you know, the whole problem of the many, many secondary uses of social security numbers, because it's also the key to financial information, that that's a problem. Yes. And so until the whole medical field changes or dramatic other things occur, this use in the universities is, you know, that's just the way it is. They're, they're, they're in the same boat as everybody else when it comes to medical services. Well, but, but I point, just,
1: I just well, want to say something because that's so important what you were saying, and I just wanted to say advice out here from us that because your health insurance card no longer is your Social Security number and you have a unique identifier now on your card, That if you have health insurance, don't give your SSN. Don't I? I you know I go to the doctor and I put NA when they ask me for it, Mm -hmm. and I tell them why. I said, "Here's my card." Yeah, I said, "Here's my card. You've got my card. This is my unique identifier. You don't have to." Now, if you don't have health insurance, then I understand that they're going to ask you for that because you don't have that unique number. I still don't like to give it, but I don't give it. I just Mm -hmm. don't put. So that's one way that you can avoid that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, you often can. The, uh, another interesting finding in that report was the the uh, sector where there was the less – we found that community colleges had the least well-developed privacy governance programs, which isn't surprising because they had the fewest resources devoted
1: to right, it. Right, right. So
0: whereas UC and CSU have have pretty strong privacy – and information security rules and policies and some staff devoted to it. it's an ongoing challenge, but but they're they're addressing it. Um the community colleges don't have that structure, and one of the things that we are going to be doing in the next year is is working to facilitate some webinar training for community colleges drawing on the knowledge of the other segments of, of UC and CSU and making some some basic training and how to set up a privacy program on a campus um, available to them without them having to travel and
1: right. around so that's great and the recommended uh, yes. s- the uh, solutions also yes, probably exactly. no. that'll help them well that, that's great cuz yeah. i have a friend who's on a community college board and i will make sure she knows about that. yes we're
0: actually sending the the report to um, the board chairs as well great not not just to the campuses right so that's that's one project that whole area uh, another one just back to healthcare uh are, you know what a personal health record is
1: yeah those those are the digital records that get yeah, we- on-
0: online yes I, I, I mean the the a website that allows you to store your medical records my own yeah it's my yeah, own personal your own. health right right um and you may depending on arrangements and what their policies are, you may use it to help uh, receive and send information to your doctor, but this is one that, that you maintain. Right. And um,
1: and it's in the cloud somewhere. And
0: it's in the cloud somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So Google has it, WebMD, um, uh, Microsoft. There are a number of prov- of web providers that offer this. And you can think of situations where this could be, very useful. For example, uh, managing medications for your your elderly parents who live somewhere else. Right. So that you could actually go on to the web from your house and look at what their medication, you know, when they got, because you put it in, what their prescriptions are and when they need to be filled and what they're supposed to be doing. And, you know, you could see how really helpful that would be. Or if you have a chronic condition where you have a lot of medications and measurements like diabetes, you have to test your blood sugar and keep track of stuff over time. You could be recording that there, and you can access it. You know, that's the wonderful thing is all the cloud mm. and the web. You can access it wherever you are. You and
1: and also, God forbid, we have an earthquake or a fire. Yeah, and your records. Yeah, or, and or your records, records. Are, are gone at your doctor's office, or they're gone for you, and yeah, they're all, all in one place, and you can access them.
0: And personal, so this kind of web... Personal health record is different from the whole electronic health record and information exchange that that the medical provider world is is concerned with. I'm just right. talk, I'm talking. You're talking so about this, your own
1: that you your set, own, set which up, maybe yeah.
0: may more or less complete depending on what you put on it. But obviously, there's going to be sensitive information since medical records are just medical information is often very sensitive Right. information that you want to protect and that you don't want everybody to have access to and uh, the way that so, so that so there are concerns about how you ought to be doing this and whether you <laughs> ought to and how to do it properly and what to look for in a pro- provider so we, we did uh, some research and published a new consumer information sheet on, is it on personal health records that has questions to ask things to look into if you're considering creating using a personal health record such as there have recently been stories about the um, kind of personal information that social networking site apps are collecting. Yes. So when you go play a little game on a social networking site or use some cute little app on your on your phone, um, information about you is being collected. Let alone the kind of information that's being collected from your browser and your and everything you key in as you just. Browse around the net. So, if you're talking about putting personal health information online, you really want to find out about what are the terms here, what kind of information is being col- going to be collected by whom. Right. So, we have some very specific questions and issues to consider and things to look for when you're considering a personal health record. Yeah. Who
1: would have access? And the yep. thing I worry about still with the cloud is the security. And is there are there some things in there about security? What to look for? Yes. Okay. Because. Of course, anybody can say it's secure, right, yes. and, and that they keep it secure. I think that's that's a big issue is the security and the privacy and the security when it's out in the cloud.
0: Yes, indeed. And and where is it when it's out in the cloud? Yeah. It, indeed. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, among the issues that come up with many cloud applications, but one like this in particular is, well, what if the company folds or yeah. what if you just want to quit?
1: Right. They go bankrupt. C-
0: can you remove your information? Really,
1: mm. not just
0: off the web, but out of servers.
1: Right. What right. happens
0: to your information? Yes. So you know, our we're we're right. offering this way to look at it, and then it's, it's up to individuals to find out what they can and make a decision. But that's you know, we we definitely want to have people think about it before they get into something like that. Right.
1: No, I think it's terrific to have that guidance because so many of us are really lost and we don't know, you know, what kinds of questions to ask and where to go and, you know, what we need to look for. And I think that is exactly what we look for in the Office of Privacy Protection. Now, how do the state governments, um, you know, all the various aspects or the various arms of the state government, how do they address privacy
0: Well, there is a state law that's been in effect since 1977. That's the basic privacy law for state agencies that that sets some. That's based on the Fair Information Practice Principles and tells state agencies what they can and can't do regarding personal information that they collect. Mm -hmm. So that law has been in effect for some time, and state agencies have the uh, the you know habit and practice of following that law, of course, and in. In recent years, as um, more and more transactions of government, just like more and more transactions in the private sector, have moved online, some more specific policies and standards have been developed to address that. So it's one thing to go into a state department, fill out a form, and hand something over. It's another thing to go online and put in all that information and you know how is it working.
1: Right. right. So,
0: there, over the last several years, uh, there have been policies developed for state agencies that are very specific requirements within the context of the laws um, to ensure that direct them as to how to protect uh, the information that people entrust to them.
1: And, and I think th- it's important to say that um, the the state law for a security breach also applies to government agencies it does, indeed and a lot of people don't know that yes it does so that's good
0: mm-hmm. and and you know one of the real benefits of that law is one is the intentions of it was to give people early warning so they can take defensive action another benefit is it says certainly um, an educational opportunity for any organization that has experienced a breach think whoa what happened here how did this happen how do we what can how do we have to change our practices or our technology or something so that this doesn't happen again?
1: And, and yeah. that,
0: that definitely goes on.
1: And the other thing it did, that legislation did both at the private and the public sector, was giving the, the stick as you've got to, you know, the stick and in, in, uh, the, the carrot, and that the stick was, hey, if you have a security breach of sensitive data, uh, you have to disclose it, that's the, 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 the stick. stick, but the curate was if you encrypt and use the technology yes. to, to, to make it unreadable, then you don't have to disclose. So and, and that, in fact,
0: is one of the policies that right. the state developed right. after having a couple of those breaches a couple right. of years ago. Right. So now it is a policy. It, this isn't the law, but it's a it's an official policy in the state administrative manual that state departments um, have to encrypt personal information on portable devices because, you know, we were seeing all these laptops and things right, that were being right. stolen. And,
1: and thumb drives mm-hmm. and every kind of electronic device that's so tiny that people can lose all the time. Exactly. So
0: now they have to be encrypted. So even the laptops that we use in my office, we the only thing we ever have on our laptops are PowerPoint presentations that we're using for educational seminars. So, you know, frankly, we're happy to have somebody <laughs> steal that information. But right. um, because those devices, th- those laptops could at some point, contain personal information, they're all encrypted. Right. So when we're setting up to do a presentation, you know, we have to go through this decrypt, <laughs> go, going through the special special passwords. And I think that's good. I'm happy it to is. go through that to it, say, look, this is encrypted.
1: Yeah. And that's when you do, when you set it up, you can, that's, a, uh, you're modeling that kind yeah, of behavior exactly. and say, look what I have to do. It's not that big of a deal. And I did it. Yep. Yeah. I think that's great. Yep. Now, how about child identity theft? You said um, that, you have uh, wanted to talk about a couple yeah. of the studies, yeah?
0: Yeah. Well, we, we've been we've been doing some some work in this area, specifically on foster children. But first, so there's been sad. a lot of concern. There is a lot of concern. We hear from yeah. parents, and and we all read about this about ch- child victims of identity theft. So um, either parents find out, or a young person finds out when they first um, apply for an apartment or apply to college or whatever. And for the first time, they are seeking credit and discover they've got this horrible credit history based on accounts that were open when they were two years old or something.
1: Or or this one that I just have, this new recent case that I have, this gentleman is 21 years old and someone's been using his social since he's eight years old. Not yeah. his name. Not his name. Right. But his social since he's eight. And so yeah. there's all this background checks with this, other, three other people's names and since he's eight years old.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Clearly, <laughs> yeah. that wasn't... His actions.
1: No, obviously not.
0: So so the, the only study that's been done to date that really looks at what is the perc- the percentage of minors, children under the age of 18, who have evidence of identity theft in their credit reports was done by Javelin a couple of years ago. And they found that 3% of them had evidence of identity theft and 2% had other kinds of errors
1: uh-huh. in their credit reports. Right.
0: That compares on the adult side to the most recent study, also done by Javelin, which found that 4.8% of adults were identity theft victims. So they're not exactly comparing the same thing. But, but we don't know, you know how accurate that is. So we've been doing some work lately because of a law, a California law, that requires um, foster care programs at the county level to uh, do credit checks on foster children in their 16th year. Hmm. and then refer them to somebody to, to help uh, clear up any evidence of possible identity theft that's found. And the idea being to um, – so they don't start off when they're emancipated from foster care. They don't start off with this huge burden. Right, well trying to get a job. Challenges. and the,
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh.
0: Yeah. So we've been doing a pilot test with L.A. County uh, of a couple thousand 16- and 17-year-olds. Uh, all foster, foster kids. All foster kids. Mm-hmm. So this is a subset and there's a belief and we don't know because we really don't know what the how common this is among children in general but there's a belief of in in pe- people who work on identity theft that foster children may be particularly vulnerable. Yes. That their their in their papers and their records and their data is being passing through many hands some of whom may not be ultra reliable. Right. Shall we say So we found in this first sample of a couple thousand, we found 4% that that looked pretty much like identity theft. And another 10%. Wow. So that's...
1: That's much higher than the javelin study.
0: It's looking like it. And another 10% that there's... It's not as clear. There's definitely something going on. Sometimes it's an SSN match only. Mm -hmm. It's not the the full identity match. Um, And sometimes it's just inquiries, Uh Which may indeed be a sign of identity theft, but it isn't affecting their credit record, right? Or their credit credit score,
1: right? So
0: the challenge in trying to deal with identity theft for children is, the credit reporting agencies don't knowingly create files on minors because they can't enter into credit con you know contracts for credit. So the only time that there is a file, it's a problem of some sort.
1: Yeah, it's either identity theft or a merged file.
0: Right. Exactly. And and what we're looking for is a way to somehow at least in the case of these foster children, to suppress like like freeze, their identities, not just the full match, but even the SSN, until they achieve majority.
1: Well you know what I've done and I you know, Joan, I've been using the security freeze yes. letters to do that for people who had children that were victims of identity theft. Or were that or they were worried about that mm-hmm. because of a step parent or because yep. of a yeah. So that has worked in that way. But you know what I think you you got to be really careful of in this study because I'm getting more and more, I'm hearing more about it from other attorneys as well, is the SSN is used with a different name. Yes, and
0: And we're seeing that too. Yes,
1: and what happens is uh, right now it doesn't look like anything or you don't have any problems with credit. Right. Um, But later, let's say they want to get utilities with an apartment and and it will come up that four people are using their social security number and they can't get it. Or it might come up in getting a job, yep. so that we're
0: looking for a way to address that. And the credit reporting agencies are being pretty cooperative, so f- very cooperative so far in this in this pilot test. And I, I'm interested in seeing both what we can do for foster children, but also then to be able to extend that children in general.
1: And when you fix this, if you can fix this issue of the SSN being used by others, it's going to help adults, too. Yes, absolutely. But in terms of cooperation by the credit bureaus, I'm just wondering if, you know, they're not cooperative if they don't want to tell you if someone else has created a profile with that SSN because they say that they're not uh, police. But I think if they let you know that there's another profile that's created with credit in that child's name then they really have a duty to tell those creditors this is not the Social Security number of the person that got the credit and they're yeah. not doing that right now.
0: You know and it, this is kind of the, it, this is the, a similar situation uh, for the credit brokers in that we have machine matching of data by nice. unthinking machines. Yes. Things just get pulled together mm-hmm. And then it pops out into the real world affecting a real person, and nobody's responsible.
1: No, and you know what?
0: Because the machine did it.
1: Right, and you know what? I can't believe this. We are out of time. Joan, we could talk for hours, I'm Indeed. telling you. But we are, I'm, I'm getting the high sign here that I have to cut this off, but you are wonderful. We, I just want to have people go to your website, privacy.ca.gov. We are speaking with the chief of the California Office of Privacy Protection, the wonderful fabulous. Joan McNabb. And thank you, Joan, so much. And we'll have you back again real soon.
0: You're very welcome. Bye, Mari.
1: Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here. Also, visit us at our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. See our upcoming guests, download podcasts, write us an email, and thank you for joining us. Stay private.